from our epistle reading, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. What's to be said about citizenship today in these United States? Yikes, am I wading into some kind of great divisive issue here in our public discourse? Well, yes and no. No, in that actually I don't think that Paul is fundamentally talking about a political situation here in verse 20 of Philippians 3. Rather, what he's doing is, I think, making a political illustration. He's actually talking about politics. He's talking about something else in light of politics. So in a sense, I'm off the hook for having to talk about, specifically about politics. But in another sense, I think Paul is talking about things that are much more fundamental, much more foundational to our understanding of our relationship to this chronological or cultural moment, such that political realities get sucked up in the message as well. So don't get me wrong, t- talking about citizenship in first century Asia Minor or 21st century US of A is a provocative thing to do. And I think Paul's trying to be provocative here. It's just that he isn't, so far as I can tell, trying to be provocative about politics or one's relationship to the state. He does that pretty well elsewhere, like Romans 13. Rather, the point is a more general one about how Christians are to view their lives right here, right now, in our earthly sojourn, and how that fundamental perspective on the nature of our reality can support the kind of humble, self-sacrificial service for the community that Paul has been talking about already in this book. As we've seen the uh, past couple of weeks in this series on Philippians, Paul is offering instructions to the Philippian church, and I think us at All Souls by extension, uh, about how to join together as a community, serving God, serving one another, and serving those around us. And the way to do this, so Paul has outlined, is to follow this maxim, Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Last week, we looked at how Paul illustrated this point um, by pointing to the example of Christ's humility. And the previous week, we received Paul's instructions that we can strive for an others-centered orientation, even as we ourselves are in the midst of suffering. The political illustration of this week, coming at the end of chapter 3, likewise reinforces Paul's call to followers of Christ to pursue self-sacrificial humility for the sake of one's community. So by my reading here, Paul in chapter 3 is roughly making the same point as previously. He's just using a different logic and a a different illustration in order to do so. So let's turn to chapter 3 to unpack the rationale in in, in this section. We began today hearing from verse 8 with Paul's famous expression that He considers everything to be worthless in comparison with the value of knowing Jesus Christ. And I think this introduces for us in this section uh, a tension or a dialectic that he's already been uh, expositing in his letter. The idea of there being some, some future good that needs to be suspended for some kind of present good, and also vice versa. We saw this in chapter 1, how Paul said it was better for him to depart and be with Christ but that he would remain there for the good of his community. And here in chapter 3, he reinforces this message by saying that he suffered the loss of all things in order that he might gain Christ. 
And then he talks about pressing on towards the goal of becoming like Christ, making, making this goal his own as Christ has made Paul his own. And that kind of catches up here rather quickly to verse 20 with Paul's headline illustration that our citizenship is in heaven. Let me apologize for the fact that I'm going to use a little bit of theological jargon to help me unpack the idea of our heavenly citizenship. Sometimes it's just easier to use a technical word than repeating the same sentence over and over again. So let me introduce or remind uh, you theologians out there of the term eschaton. Eschaton means the time after the second coming of Christ, the time after the general resurrection, after the final judgment, in the new heavens and the new earth. It's the life after death, or as N.T. Wright once quipped, the life after life after death. Eschaton comes from a Greek word which just means the last or the ends, and we're talking about something being eschatological. We're talking about the last things, the end times. This is the stuff we cover in the final line of the creed. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. So I think when Paul is here talking about our citizenship being in heaven, I think he's primarily talking about the eschaton as the location of our residence. Now that's a rather odd thing to say, because this, this eschaton is a future state for us, a future event, but yet it has present ramifications, present implications. The idea here being, I think, that that which is future for us, our own resurrection, has actually already been achieved in Christ's resurrection. The eschatological reality of our own resurrection and glorification has already begun. It began on Easter Sunday morning when Christ himself was resurrected. So Christ's resurrection is a, a foretaste or a foreshadowing of our own future resurrection. So for Paul, then, I think this, this sketches a vision where for the Christian, we have something like dual citizenship. We are, as Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians, we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We're already there in the eschaton, but we're also here and now on earth in this time. So I think for the Christian, there is a, a constant conceptual ping-ponging between two perspectives on our lives and our citizenship. On the one hand, we certainly should agree with Paul that, that we're sort of just passing through on our way to our ultimate end. But we should also agree with Paul that it's better for us to be here to work for the benefit of others. Our present bodies may be lowly and awaiting the healing that's to come in the resurrection, but our present bodies are also good and, and for our use and for our enjoyment and for our service to the world. As Paul had said, it's far better to depart to be with Christ but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. That was Philippians 1. We're already citizens of the eschaton, but we've not yet fully arrived there. So let me take the opportunity to kind of clarify what might be a common misconception about just what heaven means in this eschatological context. I think it's unfortunately become kind of commonplace to think of heaven uh, as some kind of like disembodied or, or quasi-embodied ghost-like state floating around in clouds with like, you know, wings on your backs and harps in your arms. I think that's not what we see in scripture. That's what you see on, you know, greeting cards and precious moment statues and cartoons and stuff like that. When we're talking about life after life after death, what we see in, in scripture is a, is a much, more, uh, much more embodied, much more in continuity with our present life kind of image than has typically been discussed perhaps in the last hundred years or so of Protestantism. We're talking about the life of the world to come, as the creed says. We're talking about a cosmos to come, a reality to come. 
And the vision of the world after Christ's second coming is one of a new heaven and a new earth, an earth that includes a city and all, that, all the culture that comes with it. So the goal of our present earthly life is not to escape it. The goal of the earthly life is to get good at it because we're going to be living an earthly life for the rest of eternity. So don't pass over Paul's logic underlying his statement about our bodies becoming eventually like Christ's glorified body. This should be one of our, our great hopes, not that we will eventually escape our bodies as if they were like evil, but to have our bodies transformed from their present state to a glorified state. In comparison, yes, with Paul, we can, we can say that our present bodies are lowly, but that doesn't mean that they're somehow wrong or bad, but there's still something better, something more, something deeper, something richer on the horizon. Maybe C.S. Lewis fans will remember that great scene in in The Great Divorce. Um, uh, Lewis even says he's not saying something literally about the afterlife. He's kind of giving us a picture in words what the afterlife will look like, so we can can grant St. Clive that. But in in this story, he has this image of these bodies in the afterlife that go through a process of moving from wispy, ghost-like status towards something more dense, more and more real. They're on their way toward becoming more like the realest body there is, Christ's resurrected body. Again, it's just a picture in words. It doesn't need to be taken literally, but I think it points to something true about the transformation of our present bodies into glorious bodies like Christ's own. So too often, I think we Christians have had a false view of the afterlife as disembodied and cloudy or what have you, and that idea has then worked itself back into the foundations of our conceptions of our present bodies and present reality to see our bodies and our earth as without value, disposable, or on their way to destruction. But a proper view of the eschaton as earthy and embodied, even more embodied than our present state, should work itself backward to then cause us Christians to value our bodies in this material earth for the continuity that it will enjoy with the life in the world to come. And yet the ping-ponging has to keep pinging and ponging. We can't overcorrect and therefore place too much emphasis on this present life as if there were no life to come, as if it was only the present that mattered. The future earthly life that we are preparing for in the afterlife is in fact going to be different from this earthly life that we're presently experiencing, but the difference of transformation, not annihilation. His future transformation undergirds, I think, the sort of kind of arm's length posture that Paul commends in terms of our perspective on the present. So we've got to keep the tension, got to keep the dialectic always in mind. Our citizenship is in heaven, in the eschaton, so we can have a healthy indifference to the present. But this eschaton is embodied and is in continuity with the present, so we can infuse our present existence with eternal meaning. And here then, perhaps, is a a present practical payoff for having this vision of the eschatological future. I think what Paul shows us is that this vision of the end means that here and now, we are free to serve one another. We don't have to worry about satisfying our own needs first, our own desires in the present. We have something far better promised at the end. And that means our present can be filled with self-sacrifice for the good of others. Perhaps in a sense the Christian uh, ethic can be constructed as one big exercise in delayed gratification. 
Paul writes here even, uh, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal, toward the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Pressing on towards this goal, delayed gratification, that, that's hard. And to my mind, it's only getting harder in the modern period. When we think about how fast we can get things, we don't have to practice much patience. With lightning fast download speeds and two-day shipping and microwaves, we don't have to wait for anything. But Paul instructs us that the way of following Jesus with a goal of the eschaton in mind, this is free to serve others, free to not look to our own instant interests, but free to delay that for the sake of those around us. We need not be bound by our present desires. Those desires will all be fulfilled in the transformation that occurs in the eschaton. But here and now, we can be for each other. We can serve others. We are free to look to the interests of others. Paul has shown us that the way to unity in our community is through self-sacrificial humility, not looking to our own needs, but to the needs of others. And, I, and this others-focused um, attitude can be expressed even when we're in the midst of suffering. Yet should we need motivation to cultivate this practice of serving others, Paul tells us we can remember two things. We can remember, one, that Christ did not consider his divine status as something to hold on to, to cling to. But while not leaving his divinity, he took on our humanity for us and for our salvation, giving us this example of his great humility. And the second motivation for cultivating a practice of serving others is to hold our final end, the eschaton, in mind, realizing that our, our present desires pale in comparison with the hope that is promised to us. As I mentioned during the notices, uh, Wednesday was the feast of uh, St. Francis of Assisi, and we're transferring our commemoration of him to today with our blessing of the cuddlies here in our worship and the blessing of the animals in the afternoon. A quote attributed to St. Francis is this, wear the world like a loose garment, which touches us in few places and there lightly. This is a phrase that's actually picked up by AA and 12-step programs, and perhaps this image can serve as something of an articulation of this middle ground between the extremes of casting off the world completely or becoming too intertwined with the world. Yes, we are to wear the world. It's, it's our home, our vocation, our mission field. But we are to wear it loosely, not becoming identified with it, but always looking forward to that last great day, the eschaton, when Jesus Christ will transform our lowly bodies to be like his most glorious body. Amen.